Hello everyone and welcome to Voices of Football. My name's Ben Haynes and if you're listening to your first episode, welcome. If you're back with us again, thank you so much for coming back. We really appreciate it. Today's episode. Now this one was recorded a little while ago. We spoke with Ian Dark, who's one of my favourite commentators. An incredibly iconic voice. Got an amazing story as well. Has covered so many different sports. And also his career just spans through some of the most exciting periods of football. Particularly... Um, the way in which football grew in the media. He's been the voice of so many big fights and so many big Champions League games and he's had a massive hand in the way in which the sound of football in the USA grew. Now we recorded this one a little while back like I said we did it before Covid kind of took over the took over the media landscape and meant that we had to do everything remotely so this one is from a little while back hence the the references being a little bit out of date but Ian's story is still very very uh, very much relevant and still very much the same story and it was an absolute pleasure to share it with him so enjoy the podcast today um, if you enjoy it, please do leave us a, a review and, a, and and subscribe so you can see the other great Voices of Football pods that are coming your way over the course of the next few weeks. Enjoy it, guys. Thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for having us at your home. I, that, I realize this is, this is a, a real privilege to come and do this with you. And, um, Pleasure. <laughs> I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to just begin by asking you, you're, you're travelling all over the world still. You're going and covering all sorts of events. Do you still absolutely love your job? Yeah, I do. I mean, sometimes I'll be honest with you. The travel gets you down from time to time when you're standing in an airport queue for the fourth time <laughs> that week. I mean, like everybody else, your, your temper can go a little bit. But uh, yeah, I love still covering the game and I still get a, a, a buzz from it. And, you know, sometimes you're working on glamorous events and sometimes not so glamorous Tranmere Rovers and Wickham Wanderers in a freezing cold night at Adams Park a sparsely populated stadium but that's the only way you're going to find out what the players look like for when you get to cover them in the next round so tell us then um just I assume that you always wanted to do the glamorize but where did your sort of commentary career begin where where did you start out originally uh, quite by accident in my case. I used to be a newspaper reporter in the, in the provinces and I was working at Portsmouth one day and I was in the office and the news editor said, Portsmouth Hospital Radio are looking for somebody to commentate on the Pompey game this afternoon. Anybody fancy that? And I thought, well, I was about 19 at the time. I said, I'll give it a go then. Well, I was nervous as a kitten. I went down there, <laughs> com com tried to commentate on a game between Portsmouth and Middlesbrough probably messed it up but they invited me back the next week um to do it again i did it for the rest of the season then we found out at the end of the season that nobody'd heard a word of it because of a technical <laughs> fault <laughs> so, but it was a great audition <laughs> so hang on so you threw yourself in at the deep end just with no previous experience you said yeah i'll go and comment yeah I, that must have been something in the back of my head i mean most my, my old school friends who i sometimes still see tell me that i used to commentate on the sidelines at house matches really house football matches yeah but I have no recollection of that at all but it was just something that was perhaps a little bit ingrained within you that you quite enjoyed about even realizing that you enjoyed doing it yeah maybe 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 there's always something hidden in in all of us but it all happened really by accident and I bet you most people would tell you that a lot of their careers happened by just being in the right place at the right time but uh, you know I never commentated properly 
for about another five years. After that, I carried on doing newspaper reporting, local radio reporting, and it wasn't until I went to the BBC Radio Sports Room in London, a broadcasting house, that I got the chance to to sort of move anywhere near what you might call the big time. So did you move up to, to London? Did, you were in Portsmouth, did you move to London to go and take that job? Well, I had a job first at Radio Leicester. Right. Uh, that was the, one of the early local radio stations that the BBC ran, and I was uh, used to read the news and things like that. Uh, pretty nervously and badly uh, on, on, on Radio Leicester. But it was a great chance, really, to, to, to make mistakes, knock off a few rough edges, and then I was lucky enough to go and work with some, some great broadcasters like Peter Jones and, and Brian Butler and Tony Adamson and Desmond Lynham in London. I mean, and that was an education. Des Lynham, what an incredible person to have, to have worked with. But then I, I hadn't realised that he worked in radio. Yes, he did. Yes, he used to present the famous sports report program, the five o'clock show. And looking back, he was probably the very best presenter of it. You know, wonderful, charming presence and you know, beautiful broadcaster, really, with seamless links. And just being around him, you could, you could learn a lot. You could never be as good as him, but you could learn a few things. So, yeah, I, I first sort of worked with him, really. He used to be the boxing commentator. On, on BBC Radio Sport, and they sent me out to do the interviews at a, at a big fight in America. Um, you do the interviews because Des doesn't like doing the interviews, they said. So you go out and sort of hold his hand a bit and help him with the producing and, and you do the interviews. So, you know, that's, that's where I work with Des. So what was the fight? What did you get sent out for? I think it was a fight with a guy called Pat Caldell. who used to be a leading featherweight in a world title fight. I think it was at the Houston Astrodome. I remember Des and I playing golf together somewhere <laughs> because he, he, he liked golf, but at that stage, neither he nor I were any good whatsoever <laughs> at it. And we nearly hit about four cars driving <laughs> along the freeway near the golf course and had to abandon the round after about eight, uh, eight holes. So something we've asked a few of the others is whether they watch other commentators, whether they all watch other broadcasters and think, or I'd like to take some of that, or I really appreciate the way they do that, or even if they, you think, you know, maybe you could have done that better. Yeah, I don't think, if we're honest, we're ever completely happy with the commentary that we've done. If you listen back to yourself, you think, ah, oh, why did I say that at that point? Why was I talking then? Why didn't I just let the pictures do the talking? So to that extent, it's a little bit frustrating because you never reach that, that point of, perfection. But to answer your question, I think unconsciously, yeah, you do listen to everybody else and you think, yeah, that was clever. That's That was a nice way of doing that. And that was good the way he brought that point in there. I think every commentator's got his own DNA. I don't think you should ever try to be or model your style on anybody else. You can only be yourself. But I think you can learn a few do's and don'ts along the way if you, if you listen to people who've done it for a long time and you'd be a fool not to. So where do you think you discovered your kind of what your DNA was, what your what your style was? I'd like to tell you there was some huge plan in, involved in this, but I think it's just something that evolves. When I first started commentating, it wasn't on football, it was on boxing on the radio. That's where they first gave me a chance because Desmond Lynham left as the BBC radio boxing commentator. So somebody had to do it and it, and it turned out to be me. Um, but I probably did 50 trial commentaries at the Royal Albert Hall before they allowed me to go on air because I messed about the first 40 of them up. And one day they eventually said to me, you know what, 
these have got quite good now. We're going to let you. We're going to let you free and, and, and do a, a real fight on air. But it it was a it was a long education. Um, I just think you you stumble on ways of doing things as, as you're going along in, in the in the commentary. And there's no set plan to it. And and as you said, you 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 listen maybe to other people, um, and you think I don't like. I wouldn't want to do it that way. And yeah, that that was nice. Tell us a little bit about the boxing because that must be such a different style of commentary, and and everything is almost quite frantic and, and frenetic, and, and it's, everything could change within a second, right? You don't have the identification problem. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you cover the boxing, <laughs> there's only two people to to research. Um, it's a completely different thing, really. Of course, the other big difference with boxing is you don't actually know who's winning like you do in a football match. Very you true. have to give the viewers or listeners your idea of who is winning and, and you better hope that that's something like right and you've got to kind of read the strategy and the minds of the fighters and I think to cover boxing properly you've got to be around the fight for a whole week beforehand you've got to hang around the training camp talk to the trainer talk to the fighters and you start to get a little bit of a feel about where the two guys are coming from and where they're where they're at in their preparation very hard to do I think just airlift yourself in on the day sit there at ringside and, and do the commentary but um, very very different very very different sports but maybe there are a few things the same like you have to wring every bit of drama out of the occasion and so is there um, is there a time in your career where there's sort of where you found that they were just running side by side that you were almost having to split your time directly between yeah, there was a long period when I worked for Sky Sports where I did both. Um, and BT Sport asked me a couple of years ago when they started to get some boxing whether I do boxing as well. But I don't think I can. Now, I think the football is now so time-consuming with the, with the European travel that you just wouldn't be able to do justice to both sports. So I'm sticking with the football now. Is, th is that because of what you said, that you need to sort of really immerse yourself within a fight, that you need to be in it for a week long, for example? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was lucky enough to cover boxing on Sky in an era when there was Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, you know, Frank Bruno, Nigel Benn, Chris Eubank, Oscar De La Hoya. I mean, it was, an, it yeah. was a golden era, really, of, of, of boxing. Um, so I wouldn't want to ever do it uh, below the level that I did it at so t to go back now and try to do it in a in a way um, where I couldn't give it the attention that, that it warrants I w would make me feel pretty bad can we talk about that that era so this is kind of um, you're working on Monday Night Football is that right at, at Sky and then you're also doing these huge pay-per-view fights as well yeah, and I, and I think and the decision was taken at, at one point, and for a few years I just did the boxing because right. the boxing was was so big, and um, there wasn't really time for me to do the football as well. But I was then brought back on and did football and boxing again. But yeah, it was a, it was a heavy workload, uh, but I enjoyed it. It was it was fantastic fun, and I was ringside or pitch side for a, for a lot of big events. So let's go um, some of the biggest on, on the boxing side. So you were at Tyson Holyfield, right? Uh, I was at the second Tyson Holyfield With fight, the, the bite of the century yeah. fight. Yeah. And, and you're ringside for that and commentating on that. So how do you call something like that? Well, you've got a sense of outrage. You actually, you're looking at that and think, did that really happen? Did he bite him then? Yeah. So 
there was, I think, I hope, there was a, a level of incredulity in, in my voice and that at was, the time. And so I assume that's very, the hope there is that it's very authentic and that can pe people can almost tangibly feel the outrage that you're feeling as not just a commentator, but someone who is present at a sporting event. Yeah, because I think one thing you need as a commentator is you, you need a kind of editorial switch in your brain that tells you this is huge. I'm now reporting on something that's going to be headlines all over the world tomorrow morning. Mike Tyson has bit off a piece of Evander Holyfield's ear. Now you've got, you've got to cover the bases on that story within your commentary and, and catch the drama and magnitude of that moment. Do, do you know at that moment, are you thinking like this is, this is going to be massive? Are you aware of that? Yeah. Yes, you, you are. Or you should be. Yeah. You should be. And the same as if you were commentating on the, the Thierry handball that cost, you know, the Republic of Ireland their place at, at the World Cup. Um, Brazil losing 7-1 at home to Germany in a World Cup semi-final, uh, which is a game I did. You, you've got to know th this is massive. And it's a privilege, really, for you to be the guy that's providing the soundtrack to what you know is going to be a moment of history. I'm really interested in what, what you said earlier about um, why didn't I just let the, the pictures talk. Yep. How do you know when to, to step in and how do you know when you're, you're speaking too much? Because I'd assume something, if we just take the example like Thierry Henry's handball, or, or not handball, as it were, there must be um, a huge pressure on you to make sure that it's really clear to the audience exactly what's happening in that situation. Yeah, well, the word should always be adding to the pictures. I think you should be telling the audience something they can't see. So I think with the Thierry Henry handball, yes, you're capturing the moment of outrage. You realise that Thierry Henry is going to be held up tomorrow as a, a villain, which he's never had been, of course, in his career yeah. until that point. So, yeah, you've you've got to know you've got to know that. Um, and when you're thinking about it, you just have to make that translation in, in your head. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Monday Night Football because that is something now <laughs> that is ingrained into the wider football conscious. You know, yeah, that, uh, yeah. everyone just thinks of Monday Night Football as a bit of an institution. Um, are you quite proud to be a big part of that? Yeah, and it, they were fun days and they were pioneer days for Sky yeah, Sports. Remember yeah. when Sky started and won the contract from ITV and everybody was waiting, I think, with daggers drawn to say, this is hopeless. Who are these people coming in out of nowhere and taking it off terrestrial television? So they were all waiting, I think, the critics to say, this is terrible. These, this, these amateurs from Sky Sports, whoever they are. But <laughs> he proved to be something completely different because... There were more cameras, more depth to the coverage, and I think it very quickly caught on. Those Monday nights, we used, I remember we used to have the Sky Strikers. You know, we'd do all kinds of silly gimmicks like on the pitch, anything to sell the product. You know, Richard Keyes would wear those silly multicolored jackets. It, it was that era. Um, and I remember, actually, one of, one, of, one of the first Monday night footballs was Southampton against Manchester United. And I thought, I'll tell you what, I think I need to talk to Alex Ferguson, the manager. So maybe a little naively, I rang Alex Ferguson's office and spoke to his secretary. I think her name was Lynn for many years. And she said, well, I'll see what I can do. Um, 
to my amazement, about two days later, I got a phone call back and said, uh, Alex will meet you uh, at 11.30 on the morning of the game. They'll be at the Holiday Inn in East League. It's where the team is staying. He'll be there with a cup of coffee if you want to uh, go along and have a chat with him. Blimey. <laughs> really? That easy? So I turn up. I turn up at the Holiday Inn in East League. There's Alex Ferguson sitting on the sofa in reception. Pot of coffee. Gives me the team. Tells me who's injured. Said, this is, you know, what we're doing. All right, son, everything good? I said, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much. Off I went. I thought, wow, this is going to be fantastic. So the next time we did Manchester United on a Monday night, unbeknown to me, Sky News, not connected with Sky Sports, well, vaguely connected, but they do their own thing, had run a piece called Cantona's Crimes, all about his red cards and misdemeanours. Oh, no. Ferguson was absolutely furious about this. I didn't know this, though, when they arrived for the game and sort of w went up to ask him the team. Remember the previous meeting had been the cup of coffee? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the coffee <laughs> meeting in Southampton. And he, he goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> All you people in these stupid sky jackets. What, what the heck are you doing? None of my players are talking to you. None of, I'm not talking to you. I'm never, ever talking to any of you stupid people from sky again. And off he went into the dressing room. And I called the producer in the track. said, what was all that about? He goes, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. He's furious about that <laughs> piece Sky News run. I said, you might have told me. Thanks. Give me the heads so up. That, so I think uh, that, that, was, that was kind of what it was like, I think, you know, uh, quite regularly. Uh, Alex would ban Sky, and then about four weeks later, it'd be forgotten again. Allow you back in again. But it is interesting that you mentioned that because it, the, the relationship building was a huge part of commentary, right? And, and just covering games like that more generally that you would have to have good relationships with the teams. Of course, at that point, you, you could get a little more information about what was going to be out on the pitch. I think it was easier. I think all the commentators will tell you that it was easier 20, 25 years ago dealing with clubs and managers because it was more unusual for the games to be on TV. Now, every game in the Premier League is televised. There's probably seven or eight different commentators from different organisations. Then it was just you, and it was a bit of a big deal that the game was going to be on TV, so you could ring the manager and he'd understand, yeah, you're the commentator, and he'd be pretty cooperative. Um, some of them still are. Some of the old-school British managers, you, you can still ring them up. Um, you know, Steve Bruce, Sam Allardyce come, come to mind. Ray Hodgson, and they will, just like the old days, they'll say, keep it to yourself, but this is going to be the team. And you, you, you do keep it to yourself and woe betide you if you don't. I always say to managers, if, I'm, you know, if I do ask the team, look, if you ever find that this gets out, for goodness sake, never speak to me again because it's it's more than my job's worth. So it is purely on a confidential basis. But, you, you know, I think that the, 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 the Jose Mourinho's... Pep Guardiola's, that's not in their culture. I don't think anybody ever asked them when they were working abroad what the team was going to be beforehand. It just didn't work that way. It always did in England. Do you find that, um, that in the kind of modern era that you're getting less information or that because of, because of the inter internet you're just bombarded with everything information -wise. the internet's helpful i mean that's a good research tool if you're using the right sites you can look up things quite quickly on on 
various apps, that sort of thing. You can find out things more quickly. But now there's an army of, of PR men. You'd be lucky if you got invited to go and down and watch some, do something simple, like go and watch the training just to help you doing identification of the players. I think further down the leagues, you'd get that kind of access, but not now in, in the Premier League where the the teams and the players seem to be hermetically sealed. I mean, the, you know, the old days where the players had, would come out after training and go down the pub and have a couple of pints with the Fleet Street reporters and give them a couple of stories and everybody trusted each other. They are, they are long gone. But uh, you, know, you do envy those guys because that's how they worked. You know, yeah. back, back, at, back in the 60s and 70s when you know, Charlie Cook and Alan Hudson and Peter Osgood and Jimmy Greaves, you know, players like that, would go down and be, be mates with the, with the reporters. So did you see then, I suppose, uh, uh, you've literally come through this transition era where we've moved towards everything being further and further locked down. I mean, yeah. I was going to ask you, I can't imagine the idea of someone just calling up Pep Guardiola and saying, listen, have you got five minutes to run through the tea? <laughs> you yeah. know, I just think I just couldn't envisage that ever being the case. Well, I don't think anybody would even bother to ask him because you'd get pretty short shrift. Um, <laughs> you might, if you were lucky, you might develop a contact with somebody in the background at the club or you might for instance you know like at Liverpool you you might get you might get some help from somebody in the background who trusts you and and says I think it's going to be this um, just to give you a steer yeah yeah I, I got I got a feeling that such and such and or that I'm not going to name names here because that's betraying contacts but at certain clubs we've all got people yeah I think, who would say to us um, I didn't tell you this but uh, yeah, I mean, some of the PR guys in the, um, in the past. I mean, I used to be a guy who was in charge of, of the PR at, at Manchester City in the old days. He, if he knew you were doing the game, he'd give you a ring. You know, if they were playing at Norwich that night, he'd give you a ring at Liverpool Street Station. You know, in the morning on the way to the game, and said, "You haven't had this phone call, but this is the team." Oh, brilliant! So don't 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 say anything, will you? Um, but that means you can just provide, mm. I guess, a lot more insight because you can go a little bit deeper on yeah you might be. yeah just it just it's just odd little li little lines that you can drop into the commentary a, 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 a bit of background say on, on a certain player or yeah he hasn't trained for five days so he's not you know him coming in and getting two goals tonight you know how did you know he hadn't trained for five days because you've got a, a bit of in intelligence I mean, <laughs> one story I remember, I mean, I say it's difficult in the modern era, but I remember doing a West Ham game uh, at Liverpool in the FA Cup and um, Mark Noble, who great penalty taker, of course, for West Ham, was suspended for the game. So it's quite tight at Anfield, or the old Anfield anyway. Uh, so Billich came out of the, the dressing room and I, I said to him, I said, uh, is that the lineup? Like, like I'd written it down. I said, is it, is it, like, is it like that? So, so he looked at it. He goes, yeah, 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 that's right. And I said, who's taking the penalties without no, Noble there? He went, <laughs> he went oh, my goodness. He said, he said, thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. Stay there. He walked back in the dressing room and came out and he said, Dimitri Pyatt. <laughs> <laughs> I'd Very forgotten good. that. So we, we, had, we had 
<laughs> so, it actually felt like I was of use, of use asking yeah. something. But, well, uh, particularly when you consider the amount of penalty controversy yeah. there is now. Yeah, not, so it, not, I mean, it was great. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a good, good guy, I think. So, Billy, so you've incurred the wrath of Alex Ferguson. Well, yeah. you've, I think everybody has yeah. at some point. <laughs> I mean, all the, 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 you remember the story about the, the Alex Ferguson press conferences where the reporter puts his hands up and says, <laughs> says can I ask a question today or am I banned? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, I mean, we're quite close friends of someone who'd been banned multiple yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're, you're not doing your job up there. <laughs> unless you've been banned a few times. So who else? Who else have you come into contact with? Has there been anyone else that you feel along the way like, God, I'm a little bit nervous about interviewing him, uh, or I, I'd sort of, or someone that is really nice. So you think I'm really <laughs> looking forward to interviewing him. Um, one story that sticks out, actually, I was, I was on the phone. Do you remember Nigel Adkins, who's managed a few clubs, but when he was at Scunthorpe, they were playing in a playoff final I had to do in League One playoff final. So I, I call him up and he said, I'm glad you rang. I said, oh, that was, inter- you know, that was an encouraging start to the conversation. <laughs> he, said, he said, because, he goes, you won't believe our tactics in this game. He said, wash out for us. He says, it's going to be like that, that mo- movie, Tora, 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 like the Japanese attack <laughs> on Pearl Harbor. Said that they'll be they'll be amazed. Said they'll be absolutely shocked. They won't they won't know what's hit them. We played them before this season, but they won't know what's hit them. Torah, Torah, Torah. Remember that for your commentary. He said, <laughs> I said okay. I said, I'm not sure I can, I can use that. And he goes. So he carried on talking about a couple of things. And he and he, go, and he goes at the end of the conversation. He says, you know that stuff I told you about Torah, Torah, Torah at the start. I said, yeah. He goes, don't use that. I just remembered they bloody lost in the end. Didn't they? <laughs> 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 did they win the game? Did they go they won the game, it? I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, they got, I think they got promoted that day, as I recall, yeah. <laughs> so he was backed up with his tactics. Fair <laughs> enough, brilliant. Yeah, I don't think it was anything that, that much of a surprise, <laughs> but it was, it was a funny, uh, funny interlude, yeah. I, I always think it's quite, it's quite nice how certain managers have their little quirks and their little sort of hang-ups and things that they... Mm. That you, you know you can just say the wrong thing one time and suddenly that's enough for a manager to completely sort of switch their, their yes. outlook on either you or just an interview. You know, have you ever had that before where you've been in an interview and you think, oh my word, this is, this, I've got to bail out of this quickly? Yes. Um, what, yeah, conversations with managers that sort of got off on the wrong foot. Yeah. And what, yeah, you might say something and they'll sense that you haven't seen much of the team play or something this season. Is or that make, something that people... Or you might mention some player and I say, and, and I say well, you, they'll be defensive about that player because they, he, he's had criticism and they think you're having a go at him and now you've got a sense that the interview isn't going well or the chat you're having on the phone with him. I remember, I remember David Moyes it's one day who always used to give us the Everton team um, sort of in the tunnel before the, about an hour and a half before the game and he said, <laughs> one day he just came up to me and said I'm not going to give you a team today I said what, what, what's the problem he, he said my team got leaked last week but not you he said somebody leaked my team and we lost 4 nothing." <laughs> I thought alright oh, I said, I said did you lose because the team was leaked <laughs> he went probably not <laughs> He said, we were, we were shocking. <laughs> I said, he said, but somebody leaked the team. I'm not happy about it. He said, that's why I'm not going to give you the team. I said, well, it's not my fault, is it? So we ended up having this kind of row with him in the, t- in the tunnel at Goodison Park. And in the end, he just said, yeah, well, all right. I guess we were useless anyway. He said, it'll be... Uh, <laughs> and he's not giving back. you the team. 
Brilliant. He said, but tell your mates never to leak my team. It I is. said, well, I don't even know who leaks your team, David. There's almost like a union there, isn't there? It's like the, the, <laughs> if, you, if someone else has done it, then it's almost on behalf of yeah, everyone. Yeah, but he I mean, he, he was right. Nobody should ever, nobody of should course. ever leak. You know, that is a code of conduct uh, among us as as commentators. No, you, you don't. You don't pass on the information or make it public knowledge. Or, you know, this, I don't blame managers a bit in this era with Twitter and so many people around that they're worried it's going to end up. Somebody, you know, wants to pretend they know more than everybody else and it goes out on social media. It's so quick as well to happen, isn't it? It yeah. seems to be everywhere in seconds. Yeah, I mean, but I don't understand the whole state secrecy thing about the team anyway. I mean, look, look at, if you look at rugby, <laughs> they named the team two days before the World Cup final. Um, I remember covering Uruguay at a World Cup and the manager there, I think he's still the manager, and he's under 200 and odd games, uh, Tavares, and he, he was naming the team three days before the games yeah. in the World Cup in South Africa, and they got to the semis. We, we mentioned off air the, um, the idea of managers even sitting down in, in the US sitting down yeah. and discussing with the media on the morning of the game yeah. what's going on. Like, I mean, completely different culture there, but how do you find that impacts what you do? Well, it's different culture completely in the United States. I've been lucky enough to work for ESPN in America since 2010. Can you um, tell us about 2010, what happened in 2010? This is so exciting. Um, well, just to answer your question about on, the, sorry, uh, the, the on, manager thing, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the thing there. So when all the time Jürgen Klinsmann was in charge of the USA, we would always... 10.30 in the morning, cup of coffee, biscuits with Jürgen Klinsmann, and we could never shut him up. He'd be telling us stuff we probably, you know, he, we shouldn't have been told about the players, but he'd give us the team, everything. But that's the American culture. It's part of the deal. Like when they cover the NFL over there, the coaches even tell them what moves are going to happen. They tell the director so he's able to shoot it properly. Um, so completely different world. But, um, yeah, how did I get involved with, with, with ESPN in America? Well, I did the World Cup for them in 2010 in South Africa and they were going out of the competition they were playing Algeria they were going out and 93rd minute Landon Donovan scored to send them from going out of the World Cup to not only staying in it but topping the group into the knockout stages and I suppose I went a bit berserk. I mean, I don't like the... I'll be honest, a lot of fuss was made in America of this bit of commentary, but I don't like it when I listen back to it now. And I, somewhere in it, I said, go, go, USA, um, which I thought was for the American audience. Yeah, maybe just captured that moment. Um, when I got back to the hotel, I had hundreds of um, radio stations in America trying to get hold of me to talk to me about this commentary it it was suddenly headline news in in the united states that the u.s soccer team which usually operates on a fairly low profile basis there this this mega moment that you know where the team had saved themselves at the world cup and this go go usa thing you know how would i you know when did i think of this moment i said well didn't it just came out so uh that's how i they, they, i got hired basically by espn on the back of that and still do work for them so you know, lucky break <laughs> and you, you mentioned before that it was a bit of a penny drop wasn't it for for kind of people actually understanding just the the power of football in moments like that yeah i think it was in a, in a, it, for some people in the united states the game's a lot bigger there now and there's far more people who, with a good knowledge of it in the united states than there were even 10 years ago um, you know they're watching the they're watching the premier league they're watching la liga they're watching serie a they're watching the Bundesliga. Um, 
they're not watching enough of Major League Soccer, but that's 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 another story, really. But uh, yeah, I think in in America, what was your question again? <laughs> Sorry, just just the, the fact that they've kind of it was almost a penny drop that moment. That yeah, I think like the, the Landon Do- when the goal was scored. I mean, the criticism in the old days in the U- USA watching soccer was that you know they didn't understand why it wasn't six six. Yeah. And, well, you know, how can it be no goals watching for all this length of time, and they got it, I think, at that moment. Suddenly, there was this big eureka moment where the goal, it's changed everything. You know, they're through the roof joy. Yeah. Um, so I think for some people that, yeah, I, I, I get what this, what this game is. And, and you, I mean, you've almost been adopted over there, haven't you? They're very, very fond of your commentary style. What do you think it is about your style that's kind of really captured the imagination there? I can't begin to explain that really. really? I, I get no, I can't. I can't. There's no. I do, I do the commentary exactly the same as I do it for a British audience. So I've just been lucky if they happen to to, to like the way I commentate it on, on on the events there. I don't. Know, possibly. I think they like the style to be have a bit of drama in it, but I mean, I wouldn't talk as much as American commentators do because they tend to talk a little bit more wall to wall but that's just the style I would never be critical because I think in every country the, the expectation level is different of what, what you're going to get from the commentator. When you sort of look back at your career are there any games that stand out and you think I've had an absolute stormer there I, I that was a really good game to commentate on? Not Enough. <laughs> no, I mean, as, as I said earlier to you, um, often you 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 become the more you do it, the more critical you become of your own commentary. And a lot of the times, you put the microphone down. If I'm honest with you, and I bet this is true, even if they wouldn't admit it, if the other commentators, yeah, putting the mic down and think, yeah, go away with it. Got the goal scorers really? right. Got the goal scorers right. Didn't make any major howler because a lot can go wrong. A lot can go wrong doing a commentary on you know live in 90, 90 minutes. There, you could get a major incident wrong. You could get a goal scorer wrong. You could you know, a major piece of misidentification or a misreading of the game. So the, the first feeling is relief that you kind of got away with it. Um, just occasionally you might you might have one where you put the mic down and think, yeah, I, think, you know, I came up with quite a good turn of phrase there, or uh, yeah, probably got, I probably got that right, or I'm glad I got that line in when I did. Uh, I think, yeah, I was pretty pleased with my commentary, I think, on when I did the World Cup semi-final between Brazil and Germany, the day when Germany scored seven, you know, an astonishing day. I mean, where you really, not only were you commentating on the game, but you, I think you had to kind of, bring in the sense of the shell-shocked reaction of the crowd and the whole Brazilian nation that that could happen to their revered and cherished team on such a massive, massive night and day for them um, where they were expecting really this, they had this sense of destiny that they were going to win the World Cup on the home soil and it all just went up in the flames in the way that it did. So the commentary, I think, had to capture something of that as well. And uh, yeah, I was quite pleased with that, with that one. If, if you twisted my arm and said, do you like one commentary? Yeah, I think I'd, I'd say that one. It's interesting that you say that it's kind of like a, a sense of, oh, I sort of got away with that there. But I, I know when you're preparing for games that are coming up the weekend, there's so much to take on. 
that there must always be an element of, well, my knowledge might be just a little bit shorter on that thing. Maybe mm. that will come up and yeah. have I got enough on that or have I got enough on that? And yes. That it's almost like revising for an exam to some it extent. Is, yeah, isn't it, it is. You, it's exactly that. Yeah, and they're not really enough minutes and it could drive you mad because if you've got all week just to prepare for one game, I, I think you can over-prepare mm. a game um, and you can have just too much information and intelligence. And I think a mistake when you're starting out, and I, you know, I've I've made it, and I, and I'm sure all the other commentators made it when they start. Is you can do all this homework, and you're very keen when you start as a commentator to show how much homework and research you've done. So you're reeling off all kinds of statistics and information, but then I think as you do it for a longer period of time, you start to think, put yourself in the position of of the guy sitting at home watching. Do they want to know all that? Do they want to know all that or do they just want to watch the game and you to give them a bit of gentle guidance along the way? I mean, the great Brian Moore was a fantastic commentator uh, at ITV. I remember, I remember him saying, you're a guest in somebody's living room. Try to be a good guest. Don't, don't be a bore talking nonstop in the corner and giving a lot of <clears throat> information that, that people don't want to hear. And I think we, sh we should all remember that. We are a guest in somebody's living room. So that's almost like number one. I remember doing something too, I mean, a long time ago when I started BBC Radio, um, we went out on an outside broadcast for some reason, don't ask me how, I think it might have been the Royal Wedding we had to sort of help out on, and Terry Wogan was doing it. And he said, he said one little gem, I think, which every broadcaster should know. He said, he said, always remember this. He said, I've always told myself this. He said that you know, when, when you start to do a show, 60% of the audience are going to think you're an idiot. Just try to make sure that by the end of it, the other 40% don't agree. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> which, is, which, I think, which I think is pretty good advice. That's really good advice. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe it's bigger than 60% in the case of football commentators because you're talking to a pretty educated audience, a very tribal audience a lot of the time, who all think, they know better than you about it, and they're not—they're not very happy about it if you're not saying nice things about their team. Um, I think there are people out there, and you only have to look at social media. They want you to be a cheerleader yeah. for their team. They almost want club comment, club yeah, specific commentary. Yeah, I, I think I think they do, but I think if they got that, they wouldn't like that either. I think it's part of the reason we love it, isn't it? It's because there is that element of discussion around whether something was as good as people said it was or whether it was it played out the way that people thought it did um, mm. i am interested though in whether you uh follow people's response to your commentary on social media do you try and avoid that or do you ever use it as a way of seeing whether people enjoyed it because i think, always feel like it must be hard mm. you know given <laughs> that you're 50 50 percent of the audience is going to be unhappy whatever oh, whatever far happens more than that. like <laughs> on a, far given, more than given a draw it could be 100 percent of the audience oh, I, I don't I, th I think there's there's no pleasing people on on Twitter really I, I think it's madness to to look I tend not to look at sure. the notifications on my Twitter account after a game because you'll be accused by one team's fans of being biased you know I've been accused recently of being you know you don't like Arsenal well I don't mind Arsenal at all <laughs> actually I, I, what are you talking about I, don't, I, bet, I bet you were punching the air when I tracked Frankfurt you know had that got that goal I just, what <laughs> what are you talking about? What is all this? So, I've, I, won't, I won't lie. I've occasionally glanced to get a, a feel of it. But I know some commentators who've even looked 
during the oh, game, no, no, no. which you never, I think, never ever should do because it, it actually might start to influence the way you're calling the game. You might, we're all human. You might think, well, am I, maybe I have been a bit unfair on Manchester City today, but you, you haven't been. You're just, all you're trying to do is call Team A against Team B and try to be accurate. I would say the same thing to the accusations of bias. It's, it's hard enough calling the game without worrying who wins it. I don't think there's enough time, is there? I mean, these microseconds, is, is you're reacting based on the preparation that you've done. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I assume if you've done your prep on both sides, then you're only able to give what you can give in any, any situation as it plays out in front of you. And I think that's really interesting. There, there does seem to be this kind of whole... I don't know where it stems from that this whole, oh, you don't like this, or certain commentators celebrate some goals more than others. But for you, I assume that you just you, you just want to enjoy the, the goal in the same way that you would enjoy any goal. Yeah, or just call it. How you see call it? it? Call it well is, is, what, is what you want to do. And to all those accusations of bias against all commentators, I'd say, not guilty, my lord. <laughs> is, there, <laughs> is there any games that you've never done that you'd love to do? Games I've never done that I'd l love to have done. Well, I hadn't done the FA Cup final until about four years ago. And done it four, I've done four the times? Yeah, I've done it. I've done, yeah, I've, I've done the last four now for, for BT Sport. Um, so, yeah, I've done FA Cup final. I've done World Cup final. I've done Champions League final. So I've been lucky. What, really, was, the, uh, what was the Champions League finals like? Um, I haven't done any of the recent ones, but I, I, I had a period where I was doing them sort of like on a, for the worldwide feed. So I, I, I remember the one that sticks out is the Zidane Yeah, the Zidane's goal, volley. The great volley. Oh. Yeah, at Hampden Park. What a goal. That was when I was there, isn't it? Yeah. That, that's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Hampden Park as well. Incredible, like, yeah, incredible. Yeah, a, a, wonderful, a wonderful goal um, by a great player. Um, and were the FA Cups a bucket list? for you did you want to do an FA Cup final was that something that you always yeah to do? yeah I think so yeah I mean um, I mean I support Portsmouth because I was born and brought up in in Portsmouth I always wanted to see Portsmouth playing an FA Cup final so I'm very glad I wasn't commentating yeah. on the and I was just a fan the, the day that Pompey won the FA you Cup you might have beaten Spurs in the semi-final is that right uh, we beat Spurs in the semi-final in 2010 was it in 2010? Uh, got, to, got to the final, but lost to Chelsea in the final. Right, okay. Yes. Well, that was a that horrible was a, day, that. Well, a horrible day for a Tottenham <laughs> fan, but a particularly sweet one for a Pompey fan because they were managed by Harry Redknapp, yeah. who'd kind of uh, left Pompey when they were heading for the Rocks and, and, and gone off for Tottenham. Um, Am I right? So Pompey, Pompey were, yeah, Pompey were about to be relegated, and uh, they, but they beat Tottenham in the semi-final. I think... <laughs> they might have played NFL on the pitch, perhaps, or it was a little bit cut up. Because oh, I remember yeah, one of our yeah. one of our players slipping over, and you scoring quite late on. Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, I think it was Dawson. Yeah, yeah Dawson slipped over. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, I can see this is quite a painful yeah, uh, recollection. Look, as a Tottenham fan, there's not many games that are actually that, that you'd you, hate that, wouldn't you? That game. Oh God, it, I remember. Yeah, it's I one of remember. my favourites. <laughs> Very good. So yeah, there, is there any game that you sort of think, oh, one day that you that you'd love to do? Uh, I, I do you even, know what? Even I'm, England, I'm struggling to to. to think of you probably quite like to be doing like a title decider I wonder if we might ever get that situation like we did in 89 when Liverpool played Arsenal on the last day and those were the only two teams who could win the title did we have it in uh, 98 and 99 as well with Arsenal and United 
I think, because I think, well, I mean, I know Spurs got beaten on that day mm. by United. Mm. Um, but there was there was all those images. Well, of I did the last day in '95. Uh, yep. When th- that was a great finish to, yeah, the, to the Premier League title, and so when Blackburn won the title, even though they lost at Liverpool because Manchester United only drew at West Ham. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I did. So I did the West Ham Manchester United game. That day. I think that was the first time ever Sky Sports had done like two games on the same day. Done the shot. It was like two. then. It, then it was a bit of a groundbreaker. And I remember doing. I was doing it with Dennis Law as well. Wow. That game. Incredible. Which is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, to think. I mean. Yeah. And it was it was groundbreaking at the time. I remember mm. that uh, that Sky always were in that era. Just even the, the tactical analysis, it was the first of its kind, wasn't it? Particularly with the Monday night football stuff. Yeah. Monday Night Football and Norwich City being in the title race under Mike Walker in the first year of it all. Uh, people are still reeling out those those old Monday Night games from that season. Yeah. When Ferguson's Manchester United, I think they hadn't won the title for 26 years then, United, but they won it in the first year of the Premier League. Um, finally, I want to ask you, you, you travel a lot for your work. You seem to be constantly on the road. You must have a very supportive uh, family and friends network behind you. How do you manage doing this job and 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 keeping everything together in your own life? Heaven, heaven alone knows. I think <laughs> it's the answer to that. I've been I've been married to my wife Liz since 1990, and I think she's just learnt to to put up with me being away from time to time. I think secretly. She's got to the point where she actually enjoys me being <laughs> Bit away. Of her time. <laughs> she, yeah, she, she, has, she has some time and spa- space to herself. So, yeah, not a problem. Yeah, probably as if I'm honest, you know, when the kids were younger, you probably should have been around real more. But one of the things about doing our job is often we're we're busy at weekends, but we're around a lot more in in midweeks if there's not a lot too much midweek football. So it kind of it is swings and roundabouts swings a bit. And I've I've always liked the. The fact that you can, you've got a bit of a self-scheduling, flexi time thing going on. So, I don't, I can't do the research all day. I, you can only do sort of a couple of hours of that, of that sort of intensity at a time. So, if you want to put that away and just go and play golf for three hours and get back to it in the evening, I, I can do it that way round as well. Ian, you've been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for sharing so many amazing stories with us. And um, yeah, fingers crossed we get that title decider come up with it with you in charge of it. Yeah, I can't see it happening anytime soon. <laughs>